Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. self-healing come into that because i think that's really the goal for me a lot of times is to get to the self-healing point and again i'll bring up something i brought up before which is that you're actually dealing with a system of systems you're not dealing with a system sometimes when we look at automation systems industrial side we go oh but they've they've done so much more automation than we have but let me explain something to you it's a lot easier to automate a robot arm to make certain movements than it is to automate a robot arm, a, a fleet of robots that have to work together to accomplish sure. a goal, right? Yep. And where we are in the networking world is we're not just automating robot arms individually, like the individual device is not by itself. There's routing protocols that lay underneath this and on top of this and things that interact. So it's really a system of systems. It's a lot more complex than what we're thinking of a lot of times. We can't disagree with you there, but I, I could make a, I don't want to call it a counter argument, but maybe add the nuance of, isn't everything a system of systems at some level? And yeah, there are, guess, but... yeah, there, there are atomic things we're solving for in all sorts of contexts. And we need to bring those atoms together to form molecules, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like uh, here's a, example that has been on my mind a lot lately. If I think about just IP network automation and two really close adjacencies, sorry, we can't see the Zoom recording. I'm holding my hands really close together. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the optical layer, right? That obviously has significant interactions with the IP layer and there's network firewalls. So a security function. Um, that we don't normally think of in, in the context of network automation. At least many of us don't. I think those are three technomains that are close enough together and have enough um, boundary sharing and boundary crossing that, boy, if I could even just coordinate those three technomains, that would be progress. Okay, but yeah, so what I'm, what I'm thinking though, specific, more specifically is, I want to automate my configuration of ISIS and automate my configuration of BGP. And the problem is those can't be, I mean, they work together. They interact with one right. another. And that makes the job much more complex because you- so It's almost like orchestration versus automation. Yeah, yeah. It's two domains of automation that need to be orchestrated. Yes, exactly. And I think that's yeah. something we often miss when we look at this stuff is that you know, when you talk about firewalls, I mean, the same thing kind of applies to firewalls, right? I've got to make sure the packet gets through that makes the network run, but not because because me turning something off can make BGP stop working. Well, now there's right. a problem, right? And and so the unintended consequences are, and the, the adjacent systems are much more complex than in many other cases. We don't have the control over them that other people do, so... It does make it harder in some ways. And and so, you know, to your point, Russ, the, the cognitive load offered by the complexity of these different subsystems needing to be orchestrated, I think this is going to be a really interesting area for research in AI. 
yeah. right? And how AI can help provide the brain boost, you know, to use highly technical terms, to help make those things more tractable problems. Yeah. And I think part of the, the AI initiative there is AI can automate the examination of way more data than you can intellectually handle. So you, you don't wind up with, with brain overload. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's really important, actually. I think that's really important. So I think that's a fundamental requirement for what Russ is asking for here. Um, so the next thing is um, lack of commitment from the top of the organization down. And my impression of this is people seem to think that I, when I, I walk into my manager's office and he says, yeah, go automate this, or she says, go automate this or whatever, I'm done. I have my commitment. In my experience, that is absolutely untrue. When you know you have commitment is when the fires are burning and the manager still says, or the VP or whoever still says, yeah, no, do it the right way. The fires are going to exactly. burn another hour, but you need to do it the right way. We need to set the standard and we need to do it the right way. That's when the real commitment hits. It is. I, I think we're very um, kind of, I don't know what, what the right word is, but we're very soft on what we mean by commitment in that space. Right. And it's pretty easy for a leader to say yes to an engineer who's like, hey, I want to be able to do my job faster and with less errors um, and hear all the benefits of automation. Like who wouldn't say yes to that? Nobody would not yeah. say yes to that. Right. Like, but but that's not this like you pointed out, Russ. That's not the same thing as commitment. Like that's that's like uh, individual technical behaviors that they're saying yes to, and they might not even know that that's what they're saying yes to. What they and and it's it's on the person who's enthusiastic about automation to to secure commitment. And then you know, as I've argued before, it's not just the grassroots people at the bottom of the org chart that are going to drive this, and it's not just the top either. Like I've seen things fail when the top is committed and nobody at the bottom is. I think there has to be somebody in the middle who's willing to kind of, you know, offer direction and stuff. But, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of leaders do sign off on automation um, and commitment isn't necessarily part of it. One of the, one of the threads I think that is really important here is putting the right focus on the business case for automation. I think that's something that most of us in our circles don't enjoy. Uh, because it's not, you know, again, hand jamming CLI information. Um, but it, there are quantifiable things that we can and should be able to call out. So the right support is, is given up and down the management stack, right? I mean, there are, there are reasons where I can say, look, if I take, you know, an architecture, a bigger plan, and I do this with my network, you know, I'll, I will be able to achieve cost savings. I will be able to increase resiliency. I might even make the lives of most of my network operators a little better. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's just a start. It's, it's, a, it's something I want to pursue through Network Automation Forum. Um, we didn't get all the, the right items lined up for it to be an item of discussion in the, in the November event but it's something I definitely want NAF to put some focus on. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, one of the, I, I have a couple of, of specific examples about both successes and failures in in this area. Um, commitment from the top down to the bottom. Uh, in one case, uh, organization needed to to roll out a big QoS update across 400 devices, and they decided they were oh, going to automate. They were going to automate the entire process. And they went out and acquired a tool. They, they spent the money. They acquired the tool. They did the training. Um, they started implementation. And in about four months, they actually had something working and operational that they could use. They had buy-in from management to buy the stuff, train the people, make it happen, and continue using that system. Very successful project. In another case, an organization put together a, a massive deployment of automation, spent millions of dollars on building this automation system, but only about 10% of the, the people down the path at, at the lower levels of implementation actually started using it. And it fell into disuse. At the top of the organization, they didn't support the, the continued use of the, the project that they had built. And so it wound up falling into disuse and, and um, basically it was a waste of money. So you, you have to have the support at the top and say, are you using the system we just put in place? So they have to stay on it. So it's not just support of hiring the right people and getting the right tools in place and things like that. It's, are you actually using this on our, in our day-to-day -day operations? And I, I think it's also really important for people to understand that you will you will be tested once you start once you start building these systems like this whole idea is going to be tested and like it's not just going to all like I think sometimes we think yeah there will be problems in implementations for sure there will be there will be bugs and 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 sometimes I think we think that's the end of our troubles no that's actually just the beginning of the bugs are just the beginning of your troubles the real troubles are um, like what we were talking about when everything's on fire and and you have to decide how much you really want to do this like that I I that's going to happen for every every meaningful automation deployment I I think is is going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, to, to take a really simple example, when, when people could, you know, create web pages for the first time and everybody wanted to put up their own web page, it's like, well, you can stand up a page, but information changes over time. You need to have a function that will update the information you're advertising via your web page. Um, there's an analogy here, right? Um, it's commitment over a life cycle. It's not, um, we do it once and it's good. Um, and there are all sorts of workflow um, and process implications that touch multiple organizations that, again, all go all the way back to culture change um, and doing things according to your architecture, right? It's not just Python scripts and doing it all once and, uh, and being done. Yeah. And um, I think that that kind of walks into the next thing, which is that part of the commitment that has to be done is to commit to a set of tools. Because as I've said before many times here, in network engineering, there's a million ways of doing things. How do you decide? Like Terry has written down here, Norner, Ansible, PyATS, something else. Which libraries do you use? How do you set all that up? Now, part of that, I think, comes back to architecture. Part of that, yes. I think, comes back to someone at the upper level saying, if we're going to make this work, we've just got to bite 
whatever we had to bite off and just go fix it and do this. I think it, I think architecture parts, architecture partially answers that, but doesn't necessarily. And in fact, you could say if it's a good architecture, it will explicitly not answer, which tool should I use? You still, mm -hmm. you still like, do you want declarative or imperative behavior? Well, you got your choice. You want, you want imperative, you go do this. If you want declarative, well, you've got a couple choices over here. Um, the architecture. Now I'm not a fan of like extremely abstract architectures that are like uh, full of fluffy stuff that never touches the ground. I don't think that's really practical, but but I think a good architecture would be would allow choices of tools to be made um, and without prescribing them necessarily. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. What do you guys think? Well, no, I, th I think I think you're right to a degree. Right, you shouldn't talk about tools, but I think it sets the limits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way. To put yeah. It. Um, yes, and so that the you know what's cart and what's horse. Should architecture come first and then, you know, the tool choices, or do the tool choices influence the architecture? And I would say yes, <laughs> um, because the tools that you have available at the time that you think through an architecture are going to influence that architecture. Um, but there are those you know once every ten year changes in tooling that might enable new architectures, right? Like the relative availability of lots of compute at low cost enables things that we couldn't do 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, right? That could, in, that could inform architecture in a new way and enable, you know, new architectures. I think really abstractly here, but uh, you know, if there's a membrane and the pressure can go either way, I think between architecture and tooling. Yeah. And it's probably something that in implementation goes through cycles. So based on our understanding today, this is the kind of operation to get back what Tom was saying, you want declarative or imperative. Okay, so you make a decision that's going to influence which tools you get. Yep. And then, I don't know, maybe something else comes along and you decide, gee, that, that sounds like a really interesting addition to the architecture or replacement for parts of the architecture that drives the, the acquisition of a different set of tools. Yeah. And hopefully hopefully that does happen because it shows that the, the organization, organization is learning. You want, you want to be learning from your systems as you're building them, and you want to be making decisions differently in five years or two years than you were today. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that then goes back to the commitment throughout the organization that, okay, it is time to switch. Sometimes you just have to throw it away and start over. And, the, yep. and a proper architecture will have places in it where pieces can be pulled out and replaced. If it doesn't, then it's not a proper architecture. I mean, right. that, that part point. of it is modularization. We don't do very well with modularization in our world either. We, we play games with it. I think we also confuse high-level designs and low-level designs often, and it, yeah. and we think get to thinking that one is the other, and I think that hurts what you're saying, yeah. Russ. Yeah, it does. So I want to skip down a few because there was an argument here that you said, Terry, about good sandbox functionality, and I find this very interesting because, <laughs> yeah, again, I'm labbing right now to do some to, to to build up some stuff that I need to do for work, and like wow, this is, it's not easy to pick out something as it exists today and have a lab where you can modify it. 
you're not you don't necessarily want to replicate the whole thing but you don't know which pieces need to be replicated to test the behavior you're trying to change and that's a really hard thing right now and i think this probably does impact automation a lot because another fear factor is i'm going to put automation in i'm going to make a change and then bam the whole world's going to fall apart and i'm not happy about that i have no way of testing it so i don't know yeah having a good sandbox is is very important and i've done some investigation on what's called digital twins but most of these digital twins are making a copy of the current state of a network specific to networking anyway they're making a copy of this, the current state of the network and analyzing that. And that's their digital twin. Like, no, that's not what I meant by a digital twin. I meant a real digital right. twin with data flows and real code running. Do, and yeah, I can do what if analysis and I can take a link down. I, I can say, well, this link just had a backhoe go through it. Uh, how did my network react to that? Uh, I'm going to deploy this automation script on my network. Did it fall over dead or did it succeed in doing what I wanted it to? And, and but I think that's a hard ask. That's the problem, I think. I think that's a yes, hard ask. Yes, it is. Ask. And I'm not even I sure. So, you know, my this is an early lesson learned in my career, right? I came out of, uh, out of grad school basically with an applied math um, degree and focus on mod modeling and simulation. And as I got into networking, I just kind of scratched my head, you know, why, why don't we do more modeling and simulation, you know, instead of always trying to get gear in the lab and testing things on small pieces of the network, you know, case by case, you know, or, or architectural component by architectural component. And, I think one of the blockers there is hardware forwarding behavior, especially when it breaks, is something that makes uh, network engineers very nervous. And they, they just have an inherent distrust of anything other than I'm running box from vendor A and box from vendor B and box from vendor C with the code that I've decided to use, you know, the very specific build. Um, and they want to see it in the lab and labs are small because they cost money. And um, so I can only do pieces at a time. And very rarely do I actually model my network in a physical lab because of those limitations. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's another, there's another nuance to that. I'll, I'll agree with that. But the other thing is to drive it with, with uh, network traffic loads that mirror right. the real world. And collecting that data and doing a real model like that is very, very difficult. It, it's very yep. time consuming and most organizations are not willing to, to go try to tackle that. I think part of the part of the difficulty is because this is a large distributed system. And if you end up with a digital twin that's not really a twin, then you make conclusions that are false. And the first time it leads you astray, yeah. you'll never trust it again. And, and I think some of this comes back to to software architecture of the network operating self, it's the op network operating system itself. Uh, it, it can NASAs can be built in such a way that the abstractions are in the right places. That in in this virtual router, you have a virtual ASIC, 
Um, and in this physical router, you have a physical ASIC. And yes, they're different, but the abstractions can be built such that the rest of the code north of it behaves the same way. That is, it is possible. But not all not all network operating systems have that lineage. Not all of them have the um, you know many they have many years of investment behind a lot of them, um, and that to be totally re rearchitected to make it properly abstracted is just never going to happen. And and you can't choose the network vendor that you're going to buy probably based on how their virtual router stacks up. But, um, you know, I, I think that's part of the problem too, is the architecture of the NOS itself. Yep. Totally agree. Russ, Russ, are, are, are we as former tech engineers going to respond in unison to Tom on that? <laughs> I don't know. Go so ahead. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> I mostly, say? I mostly agree. Here's the problem. You, you often find hardware uh, forwarding anomalies and forwarding behavior in live networks that oh, sure. you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't know how to abstract and put that. I I was uh, twenty plus years ago. I found I found a bug where a T one line running at line rate limited an OC three from operating at line rate because of some very specific ASIC behavior. And I don't think that's a, I, that, finding a way to abstract that is hard because you don't want to abstract bugs you might run into in the future, right? You, you see yeah, what I'm, I'm saying, I, Tom? Yeah, yeah. no, ab absolutely. They're going to be hardware things that you could never do virtually, yeah. but there is a ton of control plane code that can be virtualized, no problem. Agreed. And I think, yep. I think yep. prob because it's a hard problem to solve, we, I think we find a lot of, a lot of network vendors have just like, you want a VM? Here's a VM. It's not anything like what's running on the physical yeah. gear, but it's okay. Yeah. Like right. it's too hard. It's right. But, but, but if you can, like there, if you could have examine the control plane, yes, the data plane will always be there and it's always physical, but, but you know, if there's a bug in your BGP implementation, it does not matter what the ASIC is doing well, for the most part. Actually, yes and no. Agreed. I mean, that, and that's, yep. and that's probably <laughs> because it does run into timing problems sometimes. You don't know. Sometimes you run into race conditions that you face in the real world um, around memory usage and interaction with the kernel that you don't get to in a lab. Regardless, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that hardware yeah. bugs don't exist. They just they never said that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying that you that well, it we're going to treat you like you said that. <laughs> there's there's software bugs that can be found, um, but again, it doesn't. None of this matters because how I many how many vendors actually have a NOS that would even yeah. make it practical? Not that many. Yeah, there are some, but not that many. Yeah, not that yeah. Many. You have to watch out for perfect being the enemy of good or good enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, one last thing I just wanted to talk about because we're almost at the end of your document here, Terry, is because I've been skipping a few things here and there, is OpenFlow. And you're Oh darn. I, I was hoping you'd go to Snowflake Networks. Oh, Snowflake. Well we can talk about Snowflakes too. Um so maybe we'll talk about two <laughs> things. Let's let's cover OpenFlow real fast and we'll talk about Snowflake. So I see what you're saying that OpenFlow was tailored to switch you can do layer three switching with it. I think the heritage, however, was layer two. And honestly, if I'm to say why OpenFlow failed, it's not because it was layer two or layer three. It's because it was based on a reactive control plane. And they never figured out, like by the time they got to the point where they understood that reactive control planes, I mean, a lot of people love, oh, we reinvent reactive control planes all the time. Um, token ring explorers, uh, the original versions of Lisp, um, open flow switching. We reinvent these things constantly. And 
I mean, we still have some of them in our network. I mean, bridge learning is still a reactive control plane. But scope and scale, there's a scope and scale beyond which reactive control planes just don't work. You've got to have a proactive control plane. That's just all there is to it. So I think that the main reason OpenFlow failed is that they didn't realize that until it was too late. It already had its reputation nailed down. Right. Before they realized, oh, no, we need to be able to do proactive control planes to be able to scale. And by then, the market had already made a decision that OpenFlow was not going to work. It was too late. You, you could argue the interface could be used to build a proactive. In fact, it can be used to build a proactive right. control plane, but it's just not how the software was built at the time. Exactly. Right. And eventually, like and I said, they, they came to that conclusion, but it was. Yeah. My, my point in what I wrote up um, between us was that OpenFlow was, didn't have the opportunity of a long enough gestation period to work out a bunch of these nits. And the market mm-hmm. made a decision, and it just died right there. Yep, that's exactly right. And I, let me um, let me let me take a moment to remember OpenFlow fondly and pay respect <laughs> to some of, some of the contributions it did make. Um, since I've gone on record on not being really excited about OpenFlow ever, um, you know, the, just the idea of being able to program the fib and opening that up and giving people outside the router and switch vendor um, space, the exposure to the idea that, oh, there are other ways that I could enter FIB entries. That's a good thing, right? And so even though OpenFlow may not have been, you know, it obviously hasn't um, gone on to receive wide deployment, you know, the ideas out there are important. And Terry, you know, you've mentioned too, you've seen some of the important lessons learned make it back into some ASIC designs. So, you know, we can see that with lots of other technological developments too, even though, you know, even though they didn't enjoy commercial success, they introduced important ideas into the ecosystem. I, I actually had high hopes for I2RS for a long time, but it fell apart as well on, on many of the same shores of, People set up different expectations than I thought were the right thing, and it just fell apart because of that. It became a digital training, a, a soft digital twinning and automation system, and it was originally designed to be just what it sounds like an interface to the rib. So you could just create new routing protocols or write a, write an, write a service that just installed stuff directly in the rib, and it gets around the, the open flow abstraction problems of different A6 and the P4 abstraction problems and everything else. So I don't really care what's southbound to the rib. I'm installing it in the rib. Thank you. I'm done. And, you know, so another one of those things where we kind of didn't let it gestate or whatever. All right. Snowflakes, Terry, have your say. We're going (laughs) to. Part of the problem. And and actually, ChatGPT came up with this as well. Legacy infrastructure. Uh, networks have infrastructure that lacks the necessary programmability and automation capabilities. That's what GPT had to say. <laughs> mm. And it, yeah. it's basically that. We have these networks that are unique, and it makes automation really hard because you have to handle all the corner cases that it might run into. Um, a good, very simple example is you have 500 branches and the, the prediction of what is the uplink 
is never consistent across them. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have a we have a standard branch design and you you pull the covers back and you start taking a look closely at it and you find out that there are four or five different variations of the standard branch design. <laughs> Because you happen to have router X on the shelf and you could deploy that branch quickly instead of having to wait for an order to get turned around. Yeah. And I think I think part of the, you know, like when Ethan talks about snowflakes and he worries about it, he thinks about he thinks about more like all branches in the world should be designed the same. Like there should be five branch designs in the world. What you're talking about, Terry, is more like within a single organization. There should yeah. Be yes. And that, yeah. and I think that's that's perfectly valid. I think that, that you know, I'm not sure how realistic it is that we'll ever get to a single branch design across the entire world, but I do think a single company, you should have a life cycle. Part of your architecture should be a life cycle, and it should be part of my architecture should be, thou shalt not have more than three branch designs deployed at a time. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was I was just going to make the point that. You can have multiple branch designs because they'll be at different points in the maturity model for how you're deploying those branches. And you may have a, a different set of branch designs depending on whether it's a five-person branch or a 50-person branch. Right. Correct. Right. But but you should have a life cycle. You should say, yeah. you know, I'm deploying. So I'm designing a new branch design or a new data center fabric or a new campus or whatever it is. This is a brand new design. Great. I am going to make the commitment right now that when I deploy this, I am going to have a process and a plan within X period of months, not years, months, weeks is better, but let's just live with months to take out everything. So if I have four generations today, I design a new one. I'm taking out the first generation. Exactly. Four months. Yeah. Pre-commit to that. That's just the way things yeah. work. Um, there's there's a first there's a first principle here, right? Where, you know, I should only tolerate complexity when it provides value. That's right. And if increased complexity doesn't provide value, that means it's only adding cost. Yeah. So take take Occam's razor and <laughs> cut out everything that you can to make it as simple as you can. And that's engineering elegance. It's not making it complex because it's really cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I once worked on a, a financial network deployment. So we brought in a bunch of people <laughs> going out and deploying them. We had stock configurations. We, we had everything designed. You know, here's the building blocks. Here are the configurations to go in them. And we go back and start taking a look at the configs. It's like, where did this config come from? And the CCIE who worked on that particular branch said, but the hardware does that. <laughs> and yeah, he completely changed the config so that it was no longer a standard config just because the hardware could do some function. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah. I, 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 I time. <laughs> yeah. I think when I think Snowflake, I think more like where Russ was saying at a higher level, like in, on an industry level, I, I wouldn't describe this as Snowflake. I would just describe this as internal inconsistency and lack of, lack of discipline yeah. and deployment like and definitely i totally agree you can't you can't automate that i mean you can um if you automate it what you end up doing is you end up taking the complexity and pushing it into your data model your data model becomes just totally trashed with every exception 
and you can do it. You can still do it. You can still write your templates. You can still push config. You can still, but, but you look at the data model and it becomes impossible to use it for anything other than rendering configs. And I mean, that's, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so there are really two levels of, of snowflake here. There's the, the higher abstract snowflake that you're talking about that, that covers an entire organization and how they have architected their network. And then there's a smaller snowflake of this branch is different than that branch for no obvious reason. Yeah. There's actually a third level, which is industry-wide. And I'm not sure right. that we'll ever get to anything less than snowflake at the industry level. Maybe Nor should we. Nor should we, in my opinion. Agreed. Right. Yeah. Yep. But there's, there, this is part of a, you know, this could be justification for, you know, Russ's comment on modularization, right? So let's say you, you need nine months or a year to get down to two or three standard branch designs. You know, you could design things in a way such that every branch has, has uplink. Uplink comes in different flavors, right? And, you know, you could, you could separate that out from the, you know, the branch implementation and, and deprecate a class of uplink when you finally gotten rid of it in the network. Yeah. I know that's abstract for, for this example. No, but. no, even, even more so if you add a fourth type of uplink, commit yourself to getting rid of one of the other ones within a certain period of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, just say, yeah. I'm yeah. only going to have three uplink styles from my branches. That's it. That's what I'm having. And if somebody says, well, that takes this branch offline, well, then we need to reconsider adding this other one, okay? We need to think in terms of how many kinds of uplink do I want in my network? I don't want a different uplink for every region, and I have 100 regions, you know? I just, that's, yep. the complexity is just not, it's just, you're not gaining anything with that kind of complexity. Oh, but in this area, I can get Metro E. And in that area, I can only get DSL or, well, not DSL anymore because it's going away. But I can only get GPON off of a, a local cable provider. And I can get GPON off a local cable provider in the other area, but DSL, but this new, this new Metro E stuff is so much better. I should go and deploy that in that area. Well, wait a minute. You're gaining bandwidth for one particular location against the complexity of now supporting two different kinds of network. And, mean, what, and what happens there, Russ, is a lot of times that's driven by financials because that Metro E costs less than the, the uplink type that was that it's supplanting. Right. And so implement, implementation costs drive the decision, not how much does it cost in total cost of ownership. Yep, that's right. And, I, and that's where having an architecture, and again, where you know whether or not you have a commitment from upper level management, right? If they commit exactly. to paying a little bit more to make the architecture work, then you've got a real commitment. But, you know, otherwise you're just playing games with what the word commitment means. The thing I think is interesting about a culture, especially on the finance side of automation, is you, when, when the organization does commit to this, because um, you have all these costs that are always there's all this this tension between them that you have cost of implementation um, here you know as soon as you introduce software as a significant part of your um, as your of your strategy and automation now it's going to cost something to push that complexity of the fourth uh, uplink yes. type into the software so so it's it's going to go somewhere so yes okay it's a valid business decision to say we're going to take the cheaper uplink over here but you don't it's not for free 
right? And I think we have to educate the business about this. Yes, you're, you're saving money there. You're gonna take all that money and you're gonna put it into the complexity of the software and, mm-hmm. and probably multiples of it uh, if you look at operational impact and reliability and stuff like that. And um, you know, I think those are- and troubleshooting and mean time to repair and all that other stuff that are very difficult to measure. Exactly, and, and you touched on the key one there that a lot of people overlook, Russ. And that's the troubleshooting part of it, automating testing so that you can quickly and easily determine what went wrong. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Again, something we don't often think about. So I think we've covered your list, Harry, unless you want to go back and cover anything else. I'm, I'm fine with what we've covered. <laughs> good list. Yeah, good list. Um, Thank you. So we should wrap up, I guess. We've been at this for an hour. Wow. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah. All right. So we covered a lot of ground. We did. So Terry, you're retired, but if people want to get in touch with you or if you do you still write, I think you still write for various places, right? Not anymore. I don't. Not anymore. Okay. All right. He's living so, the good life. Taking network automation classes for fun, right? That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we we may have to have a talk about what the good life is there, Terry. <laughs> sure, we can do that. <laughs> I so know. I am on LinkedIn, and that's the only social thing that I do. I don't do what's it called now? X. X. Yes. Do you X? <laughs> I'm I'm going with TwinX. TwinX. I'm going to start a movement <laughs> right here. Okay, so LinkedIn, if people want to get in touch with you, right, Terry? Yes. All right, and Scott. I know you're on LinkedIn Worlds. LinkedIn is really the best place to get me. I'm also Scott Robon um, on Twidex. Okay. Um, those are, those are the places I pay attention to. <laughs> yep. And Tom. I'm with Terry. If you want to find me, uh, LinkedIn is your best bet. All right. Awesome. And I'm Russ White. You can find me here at The Hedge on Rule11.tech on LinkedIn. And the I do log in to the service formerly known as Twitter every now and again uh, for nowadays because uh, I've discovered some things I need to do there. So, uh, But other than that, you can always email me. And I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, well, we know that you live in a busy world. You're a network person, and therefore you have more that you can do than, than you have time to do. So we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us here at The Hedge and talk about all the things networking. And we thank you very much for listening to this episode, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.